We have started a new discipline on Tuesday at 12.30. It's an old meditation discipline dating back from the 4th century called Lectio Divina. It's a way to read scripture meditatively, not analytically. In the quiet of the space, a short passage of scripture is read several times slowly and listeners are invited to let it sink deep within them, allowing the words to settle and stir up a relationship with God in a fresh and deepening way. I invite you to try this on Tuesdays at 12.30 if you are in the area. It's about a 20-minute practice. And as I start today, this morning, I would suggest that we do something like that. It won't be quite the same thing, but I want to share this best-known shepherd imagery from the Bible with you, 23rd Psalm. I want to invite you to close your eyes, and I will read it slowly. And again, I would invite you to let the words simply wash through you. Poetry is best read this way anyway allowing the imagery to make an impact and letting your hearts and minds empty of your business so that new information might bubble forth. So close your eyes. Let me share this with you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Right off, you might notice how profoundly personal this is. This is the only psalm that comes from the first person. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want And just situating it in that very personal way is in itself a rather converting energy. There are familiar words for many of us, often associated with one particular setting today, right? The funeral or memorial service. Of course, there was a time when kids would have routinely been encouraged to memorize this in Sunday school along with other prized Bible passages 
Some of you have heard me say over the years how this spiritual gem has been a lifesaver for me on a couple of occasions, especially as a younger man. I clung to it for dear life. When there seemed no other help or aid, these words kept my head from slipping underwater. They became a mantra, a constant prayer, an abiding friend, my actual breath. And you've also heard me suggest over the years that you learn these words as well. I know it's no longer common for people to memorize much of anything these days beyond cell numbers and, if they can, passwords. But I strongly encourage you to overcome your inhibition for a small project like this. It will not take long. It will take you probably 15 minutes. And I make an ironclad promise that if you do this, you will be blessed more than you can possibly imagine. For although these words have become attached to moments of death and dying, they actually address our life and living. If you were to memorize this psalm, you will come to discover it gradually, automatically, undergirding every moment of every day. This will happen by its slotting into the deepest place inside of you, much the way water inevitably runs to the lowest point. This is the proper spiritual location for this psalm, undergirding everything else. That's because this psalm concerns our fundamental identity. In a sense, it's a naming poem. And by that I mean, in the ancient imagery, a naming of shepherd and sheep, although the word sheep is never actually used. But those are only the superficial identifiers. More deeply, it's a poem about ultimate rock-bottom fundamentals. It names terra firma the ground we walk upon. And it concerns our essential security in a wondrous but dangerous world where life is tenuous and fragile. It describes our true home. But then here's where postmodern women and men in prosperous Western culture find great difficulty finally identifying who they really are, determining what has ultimate importance, where life derives its elemental energy, and then coming to understand the relative value of stuff and things in our overwhelmingly materialistic, narcissistic culture. Frankly, from our place of relative comfort and wealth, we spend most of our energy on very secondary matters rather than primary We ask questions like, you know, what am I good at or what pleases me most? What would give me the most pleasure or what do I feel like doing or how much money can I make? And, you know, these are all fine questions as far as they go. It's just that they really don't go very far. They don't take account of the grandeur of our humanity nor the stupendous miracle of our very existence. 
So the most fundamental question remains unasked, something along the lines of, well, where do I really come from and where am I finally headed anyway? And this question inevitably invites consideration of faith, faith that life has meaning, purpose, and direction. Given that I had nothing to do with my being born and will inevitably have to die, can I be secure that my days on earth have any significance whatsoever? That my life matters? That I count for something really? Something more than a bank account and stock options? Which, you know, really, friends in the grand scheme of things, is just simply a puff of smoke. You know, it makes good sense why we encounter this psalm at funerals. Death has a way of awakening us, sometimes startlingly. Awakens us to the shallowness of our everyday thinking. The Lord is my shepherd then takes on an immediately supportive function. But for those who have already allowed these words to seep into their hearts and souls, who have let it sink way down inside of them, this psalm will feel like their quiet breathing as they fall off to sleep on a still and peaceful night, knowing that come what may, they are held in the arms of God with whom they dwell secure their whole life long. And they will understand the words of the Apostle Paul when he says that there is nothing in life or in death that will be able to separate us from God's great love. Nothing. They will know these words are all about life and living, confident, hopeful living. And they will know in their bones this psalm names of the truth. And the odd truth is, the Lord is our shepherd. God is the source. God provides. God sustains. No one, nothing else, period. This is a psalm about trust, trusting God. But this reveals one of our biggest problems. In order to trust God, we must relinquish our sense of ultimate control. And again, our relative wealth and comfort, prosperity gets in the way here. Notice the psalm says nothing about our thinking or our talent at manipulating things to suit our whim. It's all about God. God is to be trusted utterly. Now that's the way it must be if God is because that defines what is finally true. Until we get this right, it stands to reason that most of the time we will feel our feet are never set upon a path that's going any place that really counts. And you know, I'm aware that on any given Sunday, there are a wide variety of points of view about this represented in the pews. You're all at a different place. I make absolutely no assumptions about what you think in your heart of hearts or what you believe. Well, I do assume that we're all over the map in regard to our so-called faith journey. That's why I take pains every once in a while to get down to basic stuff. 
important to return to basic stuff sometimes. Some here want to know what this faith is supposed to do for them the way a shrewd shopper perceives the value on the dollar. What am I getting for my investment? Others are intrigued, curious, but uncommitted. They, they like the music, sometimes feel stirred in a way they don't quite understand, but remain a little bit distant from any truth to overwhelm them. Some are simultaneously attracted and repulsed by falling into the arms of God, not wanting desperately to give up the idea that they are in control after all. There are some closet atheists among us who think that making the famous leap of faith is a mental malfunction, a gross error in rational judgment. What on earth is a poor preacher to do within this cacophony of human experience? I don't have an arsenal of clever, manipulative falderal a la our current political moment, for instance. All I really can do is, is quietly attest to what I know and what our scriptures and tradition announces. And what I know is that this psalm is as good a summary of the truth of the life of faith and trust that there is. Some years ago, a story from the Wall Street Journal told about two young founders of an early Internet mega-hit. Their company began in the now-clichéd college dorm room and went public with the biggest first-day IPO price in the history at that time. In that one day, they each came to hold a $100 million fortune in a company that in a 24-hour period was valued at $1 billion. Financiers courted them. Women courted them. The two became fixtures of talk shows and news features. During their short peak period, CNN produced a segment in which one of the duo was captured on film hopping the New York nightclub scene where he danced on a table in shiny black pants with his then-model girlfriend and quipped, Got the girl, got the money, now I'm ready to live a disgusting, frivolous life. And within two years, the bottom had fallen out of their project, their value reduced to next to nothing, and were shortly forced out of the business altogether. Now, at the time the story was written, the journalist mused that these young men, aged then 26 and 27, now faced the unexpected question, what were they going to do now with the rest of their lives? The one-time nightclub sensation said, this is all I've ever known, the Internet and the mania. It's scary. I basically had a midlife crisis when I was 26. Now, you know, these guys were no better nor worse than the rest of us. And their story has a sort of 21st century American everyman equality, even as it begs the question of what finally makes for a life of meaning. Meaning. 
what makes for a life of faith and trust and hope and courage. The things we peddle in here. And this perennial question is the same for all of us. You know whether we're 26 or 56 or 86. Compared to the world of technology and the Internet and real estate and international financial markets and derivatives and all the other hubbub in which we city dwellers mix it up, the quaint words of the 23rd Psalm sound really out of step, out of sync. You know, as I was thinking about it this week, I, I thought it sounded like a script out of a science fiction television show, an alternate universe. They speak of quiet meadows and a shepherd who is utterly trustworthy. They tell this human story in a starkly different manner than contemporary models. They establish different starting and ending points from our cultural norms today. They confront our cultural norms today. They're subversive, actually. Imagine that, the 23rd Psalm. Subversive. Yet centuries of accumulating experience tell us that if these words are fully absorbed, they allow our lives to conform to the underlying order of things. And friends, (laughs) what a relief to finally come to rest on the most secure foundation there is. What a relief. All the flapping and flopping around in our lives can simply stop. Simply stop. Can you imagine it? We are not relieved of great difficulties and hard choices, but man, oh man, Hope then drives us confidently into the future, knowing for certain the direction of our true home. How about that?